Gotta face it, it's an it's an impossible business until it's not impossible anymore, yeah. right? You just got to keep chipping away at the impossibility every day a little bit until it's possible. This is the Act One Podcast. I'm your host, James Duke. Thanks for listening. If you enjoy our podcast, please do us a favor and help us spread the word and share it with others who you think might also enjoy. And be sure to subscribe and leave us a good review as well. Today, I am bringing you a very special episode of the Act One Podcast. On this episode, I'm going to play for you our Act One TV showrunner roundtable that we hosted on Zoom back in February of this year. Joining me in the discussion are four seasoned veterans of the television business who are all either currently showrunning or have been a showrunner in the past. Our panelists include Monica Maser, who served as showrunner on Queen Sugar and most recently um, on CBS's MacGyver. Uh, also with us is Brian Bird, the co-creator and executive producer and former showrunner of the hit Hallmark show, When Calls the Heart. Cheryl J. Anderson is the showrunner and executive producer of the hit Netflix show Sweet Magnolias. And also joining us is Saladin K. Patterson, who served as showrunner on The Last OG with Tracy Morgan, as well as the upcoming Wonder Years reboot on ABC. Back in February, we had a wonderful, wide-ranging conversation, and I'm excited to be able to share our discussion to our podcast audience today. I hope you enjoy. The the purpose of this evening is I, I wanted to accomplish is one just wanted to sit down with four really uh, wonderful people and have a conversation about the the business of television right and uh, what does it look like from your perspective because every single one of you have held different positions in this industry I think Saladin's the only one who's who's a MIT grad uh, so. <laughs> He he officially he officially is the smartest one in the room. Maybe not. Maybe we no, have a few. Uh, no. Maybe we have some Caltech people or something. But oh, right. no. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I want to start off with the conversation, just talking to you guys about where you started. Can you think back to one of your best or worst days when you started out in this business, and what kept you going? Right on that day when maybe you got yelled at or Maybe you just really screwed up or I don't know what it was, but what was it like? You know, I'll start with you, uh, Cheryl. And what was it like for you uh, in the beginning? And, and when did you feel like, I don't, I don't know what it's going to take, but I'm going to do whatever it takes to kind of keep going um, in this career. Well, I came to the West coast with that notion um, that I'm going to do whatever it takes because I did not want to leave the East Coast. I didn't want to leave my family and my friends, but this seemed to be the place that I had to be to do what I wanted to do. And um, my parents were incredible about it. They said, you know, you need to do this, particularly if you feel called to do this. Um, I think my dad was grateful that I decided to come out here because I stopped asking to go to seminary. Um, but um, I, I gave myself five years and good stuff happened before the five years ran out. 
Um, but I can probably dice up all the time I've been here into five-year chunks and think, <laughs> well, if this had been the first five years, I wouldn't still be here. Yeah. Um, I used to have what, uh, what I called law school moments, which were sitting on the kitchen floor at three o'clock in the morning, sobbing and wondering if it was too late to go to law school. <laughs> um, but the, the conversation that came to mind when you asked the question wasn't that long ago, um, but I'd had a series of uh, disappointing near, near successes rather than near misses. Um, and my father, who was a naval officer, so had a very ordered mm. view of the world and was a highly decorated man. I mean, my idol. He said to me, I don't know how you do what you do, <laughs> which shook me. But I said, you know, I'm trying to live the life you raised me to live. And so if God wants me to do something different, he's got to speak up because I keep asking him if I should leave. And he hasn't told me to yet. Mm. And so at every crossroad, um, I say, so is this it? And he hasn't told me to leave town yet. Wow. Saladin, for you, did you, because um, you, your story is you didn't start out, right, uh, right. as a writer. Is that right? Right. Um, you know, my, uh, my undergraduate degree, you know, as you mentioned earlier, was in electrical, electrical engineering at MIT. And then I went to grad school for psychology, which when I'm in pitch meetings, I use that to say, that, you know, I can do a lot of things, but the reality was I couldn't do anything really, really well. Um, and so it was um, trying different things. Um, so yeah, you know, I kind of came, I, I fell, by the grace of God, I fell, in, I fell into writing um, when I was in grad school, not knowing much about it, um, not having known much about it growing up in Alabama, in terms of it being a viable profession. Um, I kind of fell in love with the idea of it in grad school. And just that's kind of when I started my, my path out here. When was the first time, um, Monica, for you, what was the first time for you where you thought to yourself, uh, I don't think I can do this, but I'm not going to stop? Or maybe you never had that thought. No, no, I did. I, I think it wasn't it wasn't at the beginning trying to break in because I started in theater working and and was sort of like an up and coming theater director and, and had a mentor who was like, you should think about TV and film and was, you know, writing plays. And then I came out here and I had so much support from my family, from my mom and my dad and an alumni um, group that helped me get, you know, my first job as an assistant on the Paramount lot. So I think at the beginning of my career is really tenacious, had a lot of support, had a lot of um, really solid um friends from church who were constantly, we were constantly praying. So I, I think I felt like this is going to happen for sure. It really wasn't until I was like a mid-level, lower level writer at, on a particular show with a really hard boss that was bullying me and the two other female writers. And I didn't really see it that way. I was just like, gosh, why won't he approve my outline? And I, I've told this story before, but like he made me rewrite my outline 14 times. And then I met a woman and it was just, and it wasn't rewrite the same story. It was like, this is a story about a 
North Korean agent, you know, trying to defect mm. to no, now we want you to write a story about an Olympic swimmer from Paraguay. You know, he would just change the entire story. And then I went to a mixer and with friends and I, they introduced me to a woman and they said, Oh, you shoot, you two should meet. And we started talking and she said, what show are you on? And I told her the show and she looked at me and she said, how many times have you rewritten your outline? And I was like, how do you know that? And she was like, I worked for him last season. You're a mid-level woman. He's trying to break you. And so up until that point, I was really depressed kind of, and would drive the long drive to work, like on the verge of tears every day, just knowing I was going to, like, he was going to take his red pen and rip my outline apart. And, but as soon as she told me that I was like, oh, okay, you're trying to break me game on. So, but that was like the first time where it was really, you know, and she said, this is what he does to the lower and mid-level women. He wants to see you cry. And he'd already made the staff writer team cry. And I was like, well, you ain't never going to see me cry. Like once I knew it was, that was the game. I was like, oh, okay, this is the game. I'll just rewrite my outline every time you tell me to with a smile now. So that, that was, you know, wasn't at the beginning. It was sort of at the. Saladin, before I go back to go to you, Brian, um, when you decided to, shift into writing. I don't think I got that. When you decided to shift into writing, was there a moment for you that you decided I have made a terrible mistake? <laughs> yeah, um, certainly. And, you know, of course, when you, asked, when you asked the question, I started going through my memories and there, there's some doors in my memory that may still be locked. I'm not ready to revisit yet, but, I, but a couple <laughs> of them, a couple of them did open. Um, there, um, so I came out, like I said, when I came out here from grad school. I came out here to be a part of the Disney Writing Fellowship Program. That's that's what brought me out here to LA. And so um, I was, you know, you were brought out here with, with other people in various stages of trying to break in. Um, we were all relatively new at that at that point in time to be in the program. You couldn't have had any produced work. So we were all, you know, amateurs. And the program tried to model the best way it could what the experience would be like as a working writer. We had to pitch our ideas to executives, get them approved, and we had to do outlines on those ideas and then do drafts and get notes and things like that. And um, I remember, again, you know, I mean, I was riding high on the fact that I had taken the step of faith, you know, leaving grad school, leaving the comfort and safety zone there and coming out here and, you know, I've been blessed to get the fellowship. And so, you know, it was one of those things where I was like, okay, clearly, all right, God, this has all been you. So, you know, the, the waters are going to be parted every step I take. And in the program, um, my first script, I remember getting notes from my executive um, on the, the first draft was well received and they gave me notes. And then I just kept getting more notes and kept getting more notes. And um, I remember my executive getting very frustrated with me and I didn't know why. And so um, the person under her, you know, took me out, I think, to um, Arts Deli um, back in, you know, in the valley when it had the right next to the bowling alley. Um, I think I remember that. And I remember, her, you know, her telling me, you know, such and such is very upset and frustrated, you know, and I remember thinking, well, you know, I'm frustrated because she keeps giving me notes. I mean, what, what's she frustrated about? Um, <laughs> but it was um, it was one of those things where she she helped me understand that I was still approaching writing like a student um, because I'd only been a student up until that point in that my approach was tell me what it is that needs to be fixed. Okay. Mm -hmm. Tell me what it is that you want me to do and I'll do it. And 
they were frustrated because they wanted me to start thinking like a professional writer, where it's like, well, I have a voice and I have a point of view and I have something I'm trying to say. And they can point out when it's not working, but I need to be the one to figure out what it is I'm trying to say. And I need to be the one to figure out um, what the solution is to whatever the source of the notes Mm. was. And that was, um, it was very scary for me because that was me being pushed out of a comfort zone that had carried me up until that point of being a good student and being the kind of person, if you tell me what it is, I'm supposed to go and research and study, I will find the answer from that and bring that back to you. Um, and they were trying to get me to actually become a writer and say, no, what's inside you that needs to be said that's going to address this. And um, I hadn't hadn't exercised that muscle before. I hadn't had to be a writer like that before. And it was something that I didn't, I didn't know whether or not I could do that. Um, wow. I, I knew I knew how to be a good student. I knew how to find answers, you know, um, and God was telling me, well, you know, it's time for you to grow. And like I said, I, I did not know that I was going to be able to answer those questions. It sounds very simple, but it was very scary. And um, mm-hmm. I have found that was the first of countless times, you know, in my professional career where I've been faced with something where I have to say, you know, I don't know whether or not I'm going to be able to figure that out. Um, but thankfully, you know, the fact that it has happened before gives me the confidence now to know that I can. And to be honest, though, what I've had to learn to what I've had to learn personally is that living in that space of. I don't know if this is my last script or not, you know, I may have used up every joke I had. I don't know if I have another joke like living in that space is kind of what writing is, you know, um, and that's kind of what I had to discover, you know, um, being comfortable being in that space where it's like. Then they're right. This doesn't work. And I don't really have a fix for it now, but I have to have one by the time we have a run through tomorrow. So, <laughs> you know, it'll happen. So I, I just have learned to be comfortable in that as opposed to letting it terrify me. Oh, that's good. Brian, I'll come to you. Um, is there a time that uh, in your illustrious career, Brian Bird, when you thought, I'm going to pack my bags and go home? This is awful. Yeah, you know, there there is actually there been, been many of them actually. <laughs> sort of hard hard to pick one. Um you know, I I've um because this is, you know, I mean, we've got faces, it's an it's an impossible business until it's not impossible anymore. Yeah. Right? You just got to keep chipping away at the impossibility every day a little bit until it's possible. And that all the projects seem that way to me right? When you, when you're first starting, but I, this will date me a little bit uh, for all my younger cohort of of panelists here, but uh, (laughs) my first produced show was way back in the 1980s with a show called Fantasy Island. Mm -hmm. There's not too many of these young, younger people who even know what I'm talking about right now, but uh, I had my, so I'm 25 years old and I, and I had my, I was a journalist, actually. I was a, that's how I, I started out as a journalist first, went to journalism school. And so I, I was, I was a working writer, but as a journalist for several years before the opportunity opened up for me to, you know, get into the, the TV business, TV and film. And 1985, I had my first cup of coffee in the big leagues. I had an episode of Fantasy Island that was produced uh, it was the last season that the show was on, so I just sort of snuck in under the deadline there. Um, and then it was so 
bloody fantastic and so much fun, you know, going from journalism to actually playing God and to be able to like create my own world, yeah. uh, you know, or at least a version of the world that other people had created many years earlier. And, um, and then the, the opportunity dried up because the show got canceled. Mm. Uh, I, they had said, if we get picked up for a ninth season, we want to bring you on as a story editor next year. And I thought I I've, I'm, I've landed this plane, right? I'm, I got a career now and (laughs) I made in one episode almost as much money for about three weeks worth of work as I made all year as a journalist. So it was like, I got to do more of this. This is awesome. (laughs) And, um, And then I found myself, uh, without a hookup at that point. And I went back to my day job, uh, my journalism job. And three years later, I'm in Ethiopia on a, on a magazine assignment as a journalist. And I'm in the Hilton hotel room in Addis Ababa, flipping through Ethiopian television at that point. This is 1988. And guess what I see? on TV in Ethiopia, Fantasy Island, but not just Fantasy Island, my episode. Wow. Fantasy Island with Amharic subtitles. <laughs> <laughs> and I, it was a real crystal moment for me because in the three, three years or so, you know, between then and when I, I got into the big leagues, um, I got a little perspective on the whole thing. You know, one episode of Fantasy Island way back then, you know, really, who cares? I mean, it's it's like a dust mite in the cosmos. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, I got some perspective and I and but it was a crystal moment for me because I as a believer, I, I just said, God, if something that trivial can be broadcast all over the world like this, then the converse of something trivial is true. The opportunity for much better, bigger, you know, bolder faith stories, life affirming stories, whatever, that's also possible. And I just, I got on my hands and knees and I said, God, if you want me back in that game, open another door for me. Mm. And a year later, I landed my first staff job on a on a CBS show, uh, a comedy, <laughs> no less, as a journalist, you know, go figure. But I got on a comedy, uh, a half hour comedy called The Family Man. Uh, and I had landed my first staff opportunity. And, and I've worked ever since, you know, in the business uh, since that was 1989, 90 season. Wow. And um, so... You know, for me, it was it was not so much a sense of why did what you know why did I make a mistake and get into this business and how did I trick myself into getting here? It was more of a sense of hunger mm. at having had a cup of coffee and then being shut out for a few years, and then saying, you know what, we need to do more. This we're you know believers need to have a seat at the table in this business. The conversation is going to continue with or without us. So we better be part of the conversation. And so that was my sort of my plea to, to God is, you know, I'm supposed to do this. If I'm supposed to do this, put me back in. 
Did you get to write the actual words, de plane, de plane? You know what? Uh, I wish, <laughs> I wish. But in the, in the eighth season of the show, Tattoo had been jettisoned from the show. No! Yeah, yeah, he was not in the, he was not in the eighth season. There was a, a British butler who, who uh, became- Oh, I remember that. It was uh, Miss, yeah, Chris, Miss, Miss, Chris, Mr. Belvedere. Yeah, Christopher Hewitt, yeah. And um, so, yeah, I, so I didn't get a chance to write the plane, the plane. Um, Hervé <laughs> um, was probably uh, holding out for more money or something. I don't yeah, know. I think that's what it was. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, I want to ask about, uh, and this is for any of you guys who want to speak to this, but when was the first time you heard of a concept of a showrunner? And was that ever a, like an aspiration? Was that something that was an actual thing or you know, did you even, cause you know, we never talked about, people didn't know what showrunners were years ago. Um, when was the first time you even knew that, that that could be a job and it's something that maybe you wanted to do? I watched Dick Van Dyke reruns when I mm. got home from school in the afternoon. Yes, so, yes. Uh, that was my concept of how a show was run. Yes, that's awesome. And that's how you run your show today, isn't it, Cheryl? Um, I trip just about <laughs> as often. <laughs> that's awesome um, i um i think i first heard of it probably when i was in the disney program and they kind of orient us to you know um how, how staffing works and how to be in the show works but you know I, I'll, I'll point out so in the mid 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 90s when i when i first started yes when, when we wanted to be a showrunner you know this was the time and you know, it's, it's very unfortunate that Jamie Tarras has just passed away. But like, you know, mm -hmm. this is when Jamie had landed her network president position at 29 and Paul Sims was running news radio at 29 and Bentley Evans had created Martin at like 28, 29 and Vetley Bowser was doing living, living single. And I keep saying 29 because there was this thing of being a showrunner before you turn 30. That was like this, this you know, it was like this goal, not, I was going to say goal, it was like this, this, this thing that was being held up as like, oh my goodness, you know, these wonderkins that are coming out, you know, and creating shows and running shows. And of course, you know, I was like, I'll do that. Uh, you know, I uh, know I made a, I, I made a point that I was going to be a showrunner before I turned 30. You know, then it was, I was going to be a showrunner before I turned 35. And it was going to be a showrunner before I, before I turned 40, you know. <laughs> You know, <laughs> just keep moving the goalposts. Just keep, keep moving, moving the goalposts. Keep moving the goalposts. But um, so yeah, so I certainly became aware of it and had this artificial, you know, goal that I was like, you know, I, I don't know if I went as far as saying, you know, you know, I feel the Lord's call and saying I was going to be a showrunner. You know, I, I certainly don't think that was the case. Um, although I'm sure I tried to, see, you know, I'm sure I was asking why, Lord, why not me? But um, yeah, it it, it helped me learn the reality of. I didn't have anything to say for a very long time, really. You know, mm -hmm. like mm -hmm. I needed, I needed, I needed some life, some life experience, before, and, and some failures, and some learning about people and things like that. You know, sure, it could have happened. Sure, it could have happened before thirty, but I'm sure that would have been that may have been the last time it happened too. So it was a classic example of, of I thank God that He knew better than me what was like really gonna help me be a part of His plan versus me just being able to be in variety. You know saying I was a showrunner before 30. Mm -hmm. I mean, the first time I heard the term was when I started, when I was an assistant in Hollywood. Before that, you know, I knew there were TV writers. I just didn't know what the word showrunner meant. And, and even then when I started, I was on the feature side and 
you know, features was still king at that point. And, and so it was kind of like, I really wasn't, I kind of thought I was just going to be a feature writer and write my screenplays in my apartment at night. And um, it wasn't until looking at the different training opportunities that TV actually had more entry points, um, more program, the ABC program, the Warner Brothers program, the Fox program, there are all of these training programs. And I didn't really see that on the feature side. And I also coming from theater, I liked the communal, you know, aspect of being in a writer's room and not just being by yourself, you know, trying to figure out your story. Um, so that was really the first time that I heard what, what a showrunner was. Mm. You know, I think for me, uh, when I did that Fantasy Island, I never saw the showrunner. I was working with a supervising producer and a, and a producer uh, to get that that show in place that, that from a, you know, pitch to an outline, to a, to a script, the showrunner was behind a closed door and I never even met him. Mm-hmm. Um, but when I landed on my first TV series, uh, Ross Brown was running the family man for uh, Bob Boyette and Tom Miller. Actually, it was a part of that sort of the, that whole TGIF uh, mm-hmm. juggernaut franchise, uh, company. And, um, you know, being in the writer's room as a, as a story editor that first year, wow, what a, you know, what an education that was, because it's what you learn is, you know, there, it's not a big mystery how somebody gets to be a showrunner. You, you just have to be, you have to be like a general essentially in the army. And, uh, you can earn the right to get there just by being in the business if you stick around long enough. Because essentially you, you get a new rank every year the longer you stay in a show, or even if you go from one show to another, your last position becomes the benchmark of your next position. And so you sort of go up the food chain uh, until you get to the till you get to the log jam at the top of the table. And um, sometimes you can go from you know, up the ranks to become a showrunner, but most of the time you have to jump ship, go to another show or create your own show to get that opportunity. And uh, so, but it's really like being in, in the military in a weird way. <laughs> you you get a little more experience every year. You get a little more opportunity. You do more things, the higher, you know, you go from story editor to, you know, executive story to co-producer to producer you know, to supervising producer, to co-exec, then to executive producer. And you see a lot of executive producer names on TV shows. I think we have 14 of them now on mm-hmm. When Calls the Heart. Um, that's because there's a bunch of people there that have gone through the ranks mm-hmm. and they have earned the right to be at the table. Doesn't mean they're the showrunner. So it usually it's, you know, what you learn is that you have to, you have to, you know, yes, you can become a showrunner on somebody else's idea or somebody else's show, but most of the time you have to create your own opportunity for that by creating a new show, a pilot. You go in and pitch uh, a new show and you get a seat at the table that way. A lot of you guys have talked about, um, you've made mention to, you know, Salad and you said, you know, you needed to, you needed to learn a little bit, grow a little bit, <clears throat> live life a little bit. Uh, let's talk a little bit nuts and bolts as writers. 
Um, how important is POV? How important is it for you as a writer to develop your own POV? Because uh, what I do here is that that's important, but at the same time, when you're say on a writing staff for a TV show, you're technically writing someone else's show. So uh, how do you develop your own kind of distinct voice and your own distinct kind of POV that will carry you through as an artist so that maybe eventually to Brian's point, you can create your own show versus that day-to-day being in the room, trying to make sure that you're successful at writing someone else's voice, you know, that, that, that showrunner's voice. Well, I don't think it's an either or. I think you have to do both. As you're developing your point of view and your voice, you're also learning how to use your POV and your voice in the service of someone else's. And it's that balancing act that makes you successful in um, in TV that the hope would be that the showrunner recognized your strengths. I mean, I, I know when I staffed my show, I was looking for people with different outlooks, different experiences, different backgrounds, because if everybody's like me, that's not very interesting. But if everybody's different, but we're all looking at, all right, we want to tell a story of redemption. We want to tell a story of community with these characters who have these voices, then everybody's various experiences, um, the, the shadings and the nuances of all the different voices combine to give our characters nuanced, textured, multi-leveled voices, make the world that much more interesting. And I think the show benefits hugely from that. I remember um, I remember the moment when I realized I did not have a point of view. It was another one of those tough learning um, lessons. Um, I was working for Larry Wilmore on the show, The PJs. And I remember um, I was taking one of my many, many trips to the kitchen during the day, which is another, you know, thing I was telling people not to do. <laughs> um, <laughs> another lesson I had to learn that, you know, the youngest writer shouldn't be the one leaving the room the most. Um, but um, I remember bumping the layer in the kitchen and him pulling me aside and saying, hey, look, man, we all know you're funny, okay? Stop trying to show us how funny you are. Um, we don't necessarily need you to you know, to hear what, what the funniest joke that could also be in The Simpsons or could also be in another show, you know, he's like, you know, you're the only writer here from Montgomery, Alabama, you know, I, I want to hear the point of view that your grandfather would have had about something in a script, you know, and um, it was another one of those moments where I was like, oh, crap, you know, I got to figure out how to do that. But it made me start to think, to answer your question about how do you develop your own point of view, but, but also channeling the point of view of a show, showrunner, characters, whatever, you know, whenever we were at a moment when we needed a character to do something or say something, to be motivated, you know, I literally approached it analytically and said, okay, what would I do in that moment? Okay. And then is the character like me or not like me? If the character is opposite of me, then let them say the opposite thing that I would say, you know, Um, but it always started with me first saying, what would I do? What would I say about that? And what would I feel about that? And just me being able to answer that question helped me then, okay, well, then this character is 
similar to me or not similar to me and help me then put myself in the character's point of view as well. So I would, you know, like Cheryl was saying, it was something that you know, I was able to develop kind of, you know, simultaneously. Okay, I also think it's a little bit easier than probably when we all entered the business where I know when I entered, all I had to do was spec another show. So yeah. my own original yeah. voice, no one really was interested. They were, can you mimic the showrunner's voice? And you did that by writing a spec of a show. And I remember like when I was like around exec story editor level, it was like, you have to write something original. And I was like, what? It's, and it made me realize like, oh, how easy it's not easy. It was still hard to write a spec to find the right show to spec and the right, come up with the right episode. But now people only want to read original material. So you really do have to have your own voice because that's what's going to get you noticed. I also think it's the bar is a lot higher because Mm -hmm. to be an entry-level writer, to be coming in at staff, staff writer and have to come up with a concept that is winning enough to feel like a pilot, to execute it in a way that is going to have an executive read all the way through, to have your own voice shine and also be competitive in today's market in a stack of other scripts. I do think it's a lot harder to write an original spec pilot than it is to write a spec of a show because a really good original spec pilot is is a good show. And that was the other thing I learned is like, I can't just write a good spec pilot. I had to figure out what the whole show is so I can back it into this pilot mm-hmm. so that it's convincing enough that someone will want to hire me. So I think it's it's a blessing and a curse. It's great because, hey, it's all about your original voice now. You do have to have your own POV and yet know how to, what I th- figured out my staff writer year was like, oh, my job is to facilitate the showrunner's thought process. Once I stopped being like, my idea, my idea, my, my, mine, um, and which was hard because it was lost. And I was high. Part of the reason that they were like, oh, was because I was half African-American and half Korean-American. And the room would stop when I started talking about Sun and Jin because nobody had been to Korea and nobody's mom was Korean. And so there was a lot of I had a little realm of authority. Um, and it was interesting, not so much with Michael Walton Rose, even though they were African-American. Um, but I got that job off of a spec, you know, not my own original pilot that shifted. So I do think it's easier for not easier. It's, it's great because writers, you get to serve that up on a platter to people. Whereas when most of us started, that wasn't the case. We just had to write a a spec of a show. By the way, Monica, before I forget, what was the island? Can you just please, just tell us <laughs> what was the island? For the love of God, someone tell us. You were in the room, Monica. What was the island? Purgatory. <laughs> so I was just there the first season, and I remember it was driving JJ crazy because he was getting ready to go off and shoot Mission Impossible with, um, you know, and 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 leave. And he wanted us to figure out what the island was. And so he came in one day and he said, "I'm not leaving this room until we figure out what the island was." is and so we we sat there with him and figured out you know what the island is a um it's a spaceship it's aliens came to earth to study um humans and over time the land and everything grew over the spaceship and at the end of the season at the end of the series he wanted the spaceship to like rumble and shake and everything fall off and then fly away 
And I, I was only there for the first season. And then he left the room and Damon was like, we're probably never going to do that. But now <laughs> we at least have a salt. You know, we had to sit there for four hours and solve for X. And we did. And he was really happy with that idea and, and then went off to, you know, go direct Mission Impossible. But, and then I remember years later, I was no longer on Lost, sitting in the theater for one of the Indiana Jones movies and that was the end and i was like they're never going to do it now <laughs> that's a, that's i never heard that story that's very right. cool that's brian awesome. brian you i'm curious for you because you you know you're you and i think well actually i think three of the four right monica i don't think you've written for both uh comedies and and hour long but but everyone Romney. else identified comedy okay yeah, but brian you you know you have did a half hour and you've done hour yeah. um I mean, to me, that uh, trying to find, you know, your point of view going back and forth between those types of shows um, had to be a little bit of challenge. Yeah, you know, I, I, for, for me, it was always about, uh, you know, because uh, I was I started as a journalist, so I, I was comfortable in my my writing skin, you know, from the get go. But you know, I, in, in my view, you know, good writers should be able to do anything. Now you have to kind of prove that you can do that, right? you got to prove yourself in those different arenas. That was always my goal would to be able to like, you know, show people that, you know, t- you give me the assignment and I'll figure it out. Right. And sort of had that tenacity to figure things out. And so you look at my IMDB page and it's like, I'm schizophrenic and I know that. I don't really care. Uh, I've worked for 35 years. <laughs> so you go to, you do, and you you nail whatever people put in front of you, and you try to do that. In terms of specs versus originals and so forth, and you know having a writer's voice, uh, it's absolutely true. And I think nowadays it's a lot easier, uh, as Monica said, to, to hear somebody's voice when you're reading their original spec pilots. Again, yeah, they're hard to nail. They're hard to get to do to do well with. But I think there's also a balancing act going on because if you're writing as a staff writer on somebody else's show, somebody else is setting that voice of the show. Yeah, and honestly, the showrunner is maintaining the voice of the show. And so I think good writers have to be able to be syncretists. And what I mean by that, it's like you have to be a good undercover cop. And, and what you have to do is you have to empty yourself out sometimes and fill yourself up with somebody else's vision mm-hmm. in order to get them to where they need to go. But you also have to balance that with, you know, not wanting to just be somebody's clone mm-hmm. and, you know, feedback to them what they want to hear. You got to be able to challenge the process enough to, to have your own voice. So I think there's a balancing act in that. What I tell young writers these days is have both, have a good spec of somebody else's show, but pick something that's going to last a while because if you write a spec show nowadays and it's gone in, in two seasons or even one, one season, it's, you know, you're starting from scratch again pretty soon. So I, I always say, you know, write your own original spec pilot, so we can hear your voice, but then also show us that you know how to get into somebody else's voice too. 
And I think it, I think, you know, good writing is about being able to do both. Uh, and when I'm reading somebody for a show that I'm staffing up, I do want to see both. I want to see that they know how to get into somebody else's world and nail it. Uh, but I also want to, I want to hear something original from them too. All right. So that's, that, that's my next question for you guys. Uh, every single one of you guys staff shows you hire, what are you looking for? What are you, what do you look for uh, when hiring a new staff writer? Um, Cause obviously there's going to be people on this <clears throat> in the audience. They want to get staffed. What do they need? You've talked about the spec, like, um, not only not only the you know tangible physical things that they need, but what do you what what are the what are the other intangible things that you're looking for for that writer in the room? I'll I'll start because I actually inherited a staff on MacIver, and so there was the challenge of oh how do I like learn what people's strengths and weaknesses are, build rapport over Zoom, um, mm-hmm. and and you know, manage these personalities that I don't know and, and people who already have, the majority of the staff had worked together before. And I'll just say the, the qualities that I love in our staff writer, Josh, who was bumped up from script coordinator for the, from the last couple of seasons to staff writer. And I love that Josh will always come into the room with pitches very respectful of the other writers. I mean, there is a hierarchy in the room. And while I want everyone to feel, you know, comfortable and we're all there to participate and build the episode together, just like Brian was saying, we are the army. And so title determines rank. And and so he's very respectful, always has a lot of pitches on, on, on the get. MacIver is a show that is, um, we do have a, a fellow MIT alum as well, Teresa Huang on our staff. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of GAC and there's a lot of these Mac moments and there's and there's science, but it's how do you make that relatable and fun for an eight o'clock audience? You know, kids are watching this with their fam- with their parents. So Josh is, if you, you know, don't like his pitch, he is not crushed. He's just like, okay, checking that off the list. Like he, he's, he does the homework. He has a great attitude and he's hungry. And if there has to be a rewrite, you know, on something, even before I think to the end of the day, I need to sit down and talk to him about, he's already, you know, he's like, Oh wait, let me pull up. I have my rewrite strategy based on the notes. So he's always like anticipating the needs of the show and, and he's hungry in a way that is not desperate or anxious, but just, very positive and and you know you need that positive energy in a room and also just in general you know when especially when you're producing a show in in the middle of a pandemic so i i love his attitude i love his work ethic i love his you know his creativity and thinking outside of the box um those are those are things that i feel really i'm so grateful that he is a staff writer. Because at first I was like, when Peter said he was going to bump him up, I was kind of like, oh, I really wanted to hire a staff writer. Because I also feel like in a staff writer, that's kind of like your pick, your mentee, the person that you get to like bring in and and sort of like, it's like, you won the lotto. Um, (laughs) (laughs) You do. And so you really want someone that you like. And I'm really fortunate that even though I inherited everyone, Mm -hmm. such a great staff that especially that staff writer position, it's like, I won the lotto. Wow. That's good. 
Um, I mean, you know, I throw it out there because I, I recognize this is probably one of the, the, the more interesting questions of people on, you know, watching this. You know, what do showrunners like? What do showrunners want? <laughs> they're writing it. They're writing it down. That's right. Right. Exactly. Um, you know, I'm trying. I, mean, I was trying to think. You know, like a, a lot of. I mean, I, I, I wholeheartedly agree with everything Monica said. You know, because she's talking from the point of view of what is useful for you in that room when you are when you hit a wall. Someone who can throw out pitches and hear no and keep throwing them out. You know, amazing. You know, that's, that's such an asset to have. You know, um, I was trying to break it down into what I look for when I'm looking for a new writer and what I, what I look for when I'm looking for when a seasoned writer, because oftentimes I'm looking for upper level writers as well. You know, for, for a new writer, you know, I'm, I'll use a sports analogy like, you know, when you, if, if you're sports fans, when you hear people talking about um, kids who are getting drafted, you know, into the pros, whatever. You talk about their projectability, meaning they don't expect them to be able to come and, and, and be stars right now, but they're looking at things that project to the future, you know, their skill set, their speed, their strength, their hand-eye coordination. Same thing for, for writers, you know, I look for base base talent that's projectable to that will develop into something else. Um, mm. And for me specifically, when I'm because I'm usually hiring comedy writers almost exclusively, um, I'm looking for a grasp of irony. Um, you know, irony is one of those things that we all think we know what it is. Um, and me saying that is even ironic. Um, but, but, you know, it's, it's something that, that um, you know, we all, we all know it when we see it. But being able to craft a joke specifically where you are setting someone up with something that they recognize and then giving them an ironic twist is a skill set. You know, and me recognizing that in somebody, sometimes I may read a whole spec script and it's just like one section or one scene that had a good piece of irony in it that is enough for me, you know, to say, okay, this is something I can work with, you know, and then knowing it's my responsibility to help that person mature as a writer along the way. Um, for an older writer, you know, to keep, to stay in the sports analogy world, I look for someone who's had to change positions in their career, who, mm. you know, started off as one thing and then had to pivot and show that they're versatile, but then was able to learn something else. You know, so I just look for people who have had some experiences from this. Is, and I usually get this from talking to them and meeting with them and interviewing, you know, where they've been the youngest in the room before. They've been the star of the room before. They've been the bottom of the room before, you know, and had to learn from all those things because that's kind of like the that's the season demeanor I need from like my number twos and my number threes, you know, when a script is thrown out, I don't need someone that's going to be freaking out. I need someone that's going to say, well, you know, Hey, this happened. So what are we going to do now? So it depends on what kind of level I'm, I'm looking for. And then the earlier, I, I, I can make a judgment on a staff writer based on a sample. Um, I, I would never hire a number two or number three based on a sample. That has to be based on me meeting them. And then me calling Monica, you know, saying, Hey, you work with such and such, you know, what what are their agent what, what's their agent not telling me you know that that kind of thing um you so should still that you sh you should still that josh guy from her he sounds I know, pretty seriously, good. i know right I know. <laughs> it's weird it's weird you mentioned that because first when she first mentioned josh i hated him who's this young guy coming out out the box you know impressed then when i heard her talk oh i guess i can use him too. Yeah. <laughs> that's great how about you cheryl <clears throat> um i think what i probably am most interested in, particularly at the staff writer level. Um, I mean, I, I love somebody who's got a great grasp of structure, but I can teach structure. Mm -hmm. um, what I'm really looking for are memorable characters uh, with memorable dialogue. Uh, when, 
when I'm staffing and I'm reading, I separate into the yes, maybe, and no pile. And I wait 24 hours. And then I go back to the yes pile and I go through one by one and I just look at the title page and I'm like, what was this one? Because now, you know, they're all original pilots. I look at the title and I think, what was this one? And what did I like most? And if I don't know right away, it moves into the maybe pile. But, um, and I think this is what Saladin's talking about, that that one moment or that one character or that one sequence that just kind of rose up off the page for a moment mm-hmm. keeps you in the, in the yes pile. Good. I want to be in, I, we all hope and dream to be in Cheryl's yes pile. That's a, that's a, that's a pretty, it's a pretty prestigious pile to be in. What about you, better than an better than an S pile. <laughs> yeah, we don't want um, to be in shows. <laughs> um, you know what? Great. I mean, great instruction uh, right now. This is fantastic stuff for everybody. Um, you know, when I, the, you know, everybody's, you know, got a pretty serviceable script. And sometimes they all do blend together because they're pretty good. You know, they're competent. A lot of scripts will come through that are fairly competent. And so you have to, you have to, you almost have to, I, at least I feel this way. Somebody has got to come in and own it. They're going to just come in and take it, take the job uh, for me. And part of that is yes, memorable characters, a, a great moment in a script where you go, okay, that's really smart. What they just did right there. A great twist, a great turn, a great joke. Um, but, but ultimately I want somebody to come in and just take the job from me. And usually the way that happens is if, if they're about something like personally, I want to, I want people that are about something. They're not just, they're not they're, that, that the, that the business is not all they care about, right. That they have a broader worldview and there's other stuff that they care about. Those are the kind of people that have a, I, I feel have a deep well to draw on because you need deep wells to draw on when you're, when you're writing and, uh, and writing on somebody else's show. Um, I also like people that have the ability to recover from failure. Um, that's when you're in, in the shark tank of a writer's room where all the little sharks are trying to eat each other. And especially in the comedy side of things, I mean, it's just, man, it, it's really competitive. And unless the showrunner is fostering a sense of family where there's not, uh, um, where where he's, where there's not a sense of you know dog eat dog in the room, but the but the showrunner is creating, trying to create chemistry so everybody feels like they're they're a member and they're participating. Sometimes somebody's recovery ability is even better than the joke they pitch or the line that they pitch. Mm-hmm. If, if you pitch a line and it's the great howling wilderness and nobody responds, you better have a good comeback. You better have a good way to recover. You know, um, I, I, one time I just, you know, I pitched something that was such a big whiff in the room and I just said, you know what? 
if I ever pitch anything like that again, I'm going to kick my own butt. Mm-hmm. Right. And I got a better laugh out of my recovery than I did out of the pitch. And you, I earned the right to be there because, you know, that's part of it. You have to be fearless. It's, it's a job where you have to be fearless. And if you meet with a potential writer for your show and you love their script, but you can't get them out of their shell, they're going to have a tough time in a writing room. They might be brill- a brilliant writer, but part of, part of being on a staff of a show is that it's a performance job too. You, you have to know, you have to learn how to sort of put on the dog and pony show. And, and that's hard for some people. Um, it's a learn, it can be a learned, you, you know, it can be a new muscle that you learn how to use if you're lucky enough for somebody to be patient with you long enough to keep you in the room. Um, but people that have a, just a, a fearless failure is not an option attitude. Um, one of my writer's assistants is a guy named Greg Garcia, who has created many shows. He's had a much bigger career than me. But one time I was at Warner Brothers, we were working on, I was working late at night on a script and, and I, I was leaving and he was still there when I left and he was washing our dishes and he was singing Hooray for Hollywood while he was washing our dishes. And he didn't know I was there. He didn't know I heard him. I said, that guy's going places. That guy's going to get a job. And now, you know, he's creating shows left and right these days. But was he um, singing it ironically? He kind of joyfully, actually. It was like, <laughs> I love my life, right? I love my <laughs> life. Even though I'm cleaning somebody else's dishes, I love my life. That's a that's <clears throat> the kind of heart you need to survive the business because there's a lot of disappointment and there's highs and lows and you got to find a way to stay in the roller coaster car and not leave. (laughs) Well, and I think um, now you're getting into the things that we're looking for when we meet the writer after we've been impressed by the script. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, You know, because I'm, I'm a, I'm with you. I'm a, I'm always looking for joy. Um, I, I want joy in the process every step of the way. So I want people who aren't necessarily singing while they do the dishes, but are bringing joy to the table. Um, because my motto is we work too hard not to have a good time. So if we can't have fun in the face of a looming deadline or a tough round of notes from the company or, or whatever, it just makes everything more difficult. So I, I appreciate what, what you're talking about in terms of, you know, it's, it's that spark when somebody sits down across from you and it's not just the, can I stand looking across the table at you for 12 hours a day? It's, I want to know you better. Um, Not just, I want to know where your pilot came from, but the way you carry yourself, the way you present yourself, the things that you're eager to talk about, I want to get to know you better. So let's get to know each other better while we're Mm -hmm. making a great show. Absolutely. Because you're in the room for eight to 10 hours, 12 hours a day, right? And, and, And no one wants to be in a room with a joyless, you know, high man, you know, so much of the job is being likable, isn't it? 
Absolutely. Mm. I was on a panel last summer with um, a showrunner who said, um, frankly, I can rewrite your script, but I can't rewrite your expletive deleted personality. <laughs> and I thought, yep, that's it. That's the litmus test. That's great. I, I wonder if you guys, I wanted to kind of jump into this question, um, if I could. Um, uh, you have all had these different journeys where you've worked on different shows and been a part. Now that you are <clears throat> for you're you're in charge, you're in charge of a show. Um, looking back, um, you don't have to use names. I don't want you to use names, but <laughs> but uh, um, did you experience a leadership failure in your journey that you go, I will never do that. And I, 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 I experienced it, I lived it, I walked it, and I am determined to never do that. Um, let, me, let me think. Um, it's not, not that it's hard to come up with a failure. I'm just trying to figure out which one is the most beneficial <laughs> to talk about. Um, so uh, on, on, on the two things, like, you know, one is, one, one is a practical one that, that I'll, I'll just share because it's part of the, the, the craft and the thing we have to deal with the showrunners. You know, um, I went into production on The Last OG. Um, we had done all our writing and, you know, I didn't police the length of the drafts. And that sounds like a very simple thing, but, you know, that that has a domino effect that really affects every, every facet of your production. And it's one of those things that trade off because, in the story, in the writing phase, when you're a showrunner, you're you're fighting for length. You you actually want to turn in things that are longer, you know, because you want to give the executives, you know, um, you want to overexplain things, all that kind of stuff. Um, and then you find yourself getting attached to it. And, and and I didn't I didn't police the length going into production. That just meant more headache for me, um, both you know trying to make make my days in terms of you know literally being able to shoot the stuff that was in the schedule but then also in the editing so that's one thing that i would just you know share as a practical failure that is something that you know is just one of the tools that you will have to develop as a showrunner being able to keep track of those things as you progress through the different phases of an episode and of a ser of a season both you know writing then to production and the editing um but then going a little deeper than that you know um recently was in a position where you know, was was on the show where I was a showrunner, but the show really revolved around the star. It was semi-autobiographical, and he was a very opinionated star um, and very talented star as well. And um, a lot of the stories that we'd be breaking would be based on personal experiences. So a lot of the time in the room was spent listening to to their stories, and then we had to turn, we had to execute those stories. And I found myself, you know, partly because you know I am definitely a proponent of the yes and approach to story breaking, um, because you know, you know, Lord knows that um, having too many negative people in the room, it, you know, certainly isn't conducive to to, to producing television. Um, but sometimes I overcompensate compensate for that, and then sometimes, if I'm honest, my own um, insecurities and desire to be liked also kick in to where I, did, I found myself not being critical enough of the stories that we were breaking, and not being critical enough of the structure, and not being critical enough of of what we were trying to execute um, because I was being very delicate about the fact that this was um, a person's, you know, autobiographical personal sorts of stories. But that was more, that was more to the, that was to the detriment of the show. And it was actually, actually to the detriment of my relationship with him because, you know, in these odd things, we, 
we work in this industry with a lot of um, interesting people. Some people vibe off of the people that are going to tell them no. Some people really are driven by the fact that there are people that are criticizing them, you know, and I'm not saying that's a good thing, but um, because I was working for a person like that, I found myself being relegated to, well, Salim's not really telling me what he really feels because he doesn't want to hurt me or he doesn't want, he's being too positive. You know, let me listen more to someone who's going to, in my opinion, be too negative, but still it was, it was a negativity that drew, that drove this person's creative is the star's creative engine. And so the mistake I made was being too worried about being liked and being too worried about not offending. When I say not offending, I don't mean in the moral way. I mean, not offending in terms of not saying something people don't want to hear, you know, and that was to my, to my own detriment. And is that, would you say more of your personality, right? Like, like, yeah. like you, you were, you were truly trying to, in a sense, serve his story. Right. right. And, and, but what you're saying is it ended up being counterproductive. overall. Exactly. Exactly. You know, and, and, and I, and I, I knew enough or knew enough now to recognize when, um, you know, just because it's my personality doesn't mean um, that I have to kind of lean on it because, you know, it can become a little bit of a, of a crutch, you know, and that's why I'm quick to, to also identify the fact that because it's my personality, it also had to do with me and my desire to please. And sometimes that's a liability as well. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Monica, how about you? Uh, you know, either you yourself, uh, a leadership decision, or maybe you experienced, you know, some sort of negative leadership uh, experience that you tried to have a takeaway from? Sure. I'll, I'll do the, the latter. So I was on a show and it's like one of the shows that I had the most fun writing, but the room was very challenging and it, it's the showrunner. And I, I really enjoyed working with the showrunner overall created. And, and at first it was unspoken. And then, then it was very much out in the open that there were a, there were a team writers and there were B team writers. And it, I mean, do you, it, the level of anxiety that it created, because even if you had turned in a good script, you know, six months earlier, you were always on the cusp of falling into B team and it created a dynamic in the room. It created, um, this like competitive nature that I, when I started on the show, it wasn't like that. And it made me so anxious all of the time. I knew in the room, I was a team because I was a pitch machine. But on the sc- on the page, the stories changed so much. The showrunner would also do this thing where they would pull certain people out of the main room into this. We would call it like the mini room with the showrunner and re-break your story while you were in the main room, supposedly breaking what your episode was going to be. So there was a lot of confusion. It got really competitive. And I was like, I don't ever ever want to work on a show like that as much as I loved the show and I loved writing the show I don't want people to feel like they're a team this week and then they're b team this week how are you going to give your best work how are you going to how are you going to pitch out just like you know say that crazy pitch that might lead to the big idea if people are terrified of their standing so yeah I never I like to create you know a loving a, a family atmosphere I said it on Queen Sugar when I started I said look best case scenario, we're going to be a family. Worst case scenario, we're going to be a great team. Those are the only two options. I don't like feeling like I'm competing with the person next to me. I don't like that. I I called, what was it like? 
um, there was a piggy. As long as you weren't piggy, like from Lord of the Flies, as long as you, as long as you weren't piggy, you were safe. If someone else's raft came in and it was worse, you were safe. And I was like, that's a terrible, I don't, I don't, I don't want to create that dynamic. <laughs> so it's either a team or piggy. That's the option. Let's, uh, well, let's, there's a team, B team, and then there's piggy. You oh, and then there's piggy. As long as you're not piggy, it's, you're okay. It was just a very, the social dynamic was, was odd. At the end of this round table, I will announce who is the A team, who's the B team, and who's the piggy of this group. So stand by everyone for that. <laughs> Thank you, Monica. Um, Brian, the same question to you, uh, either a leadership yeah. choice you made or a leadership choice that you experienced. That's uh, I'm gonna, this is a takeaway for me. I'm never going to do this. It's a good, great question. Um, leadership choice that somebody else made that we had to suffer from. Um, uh, this is, you know, this is an ego-driven business, right? And sometimes people can get ahead of themselves um, or see themselves as maybe more important than they actually are in the universe. Um, mm -hmm. And I had a showrunner uh, who decided not to take notes from the network hmm. because she said they're stupid notes and I'm just not doing it. And it was a hit show. And um, the blowback was, was hard because we literally had to re-break a show uh, in about 24 hours, start from scratch. Uh, because there was a big spanking that took place from the network. You're never too big for the network. They control, they, you know, he who has the gold makes the rules. That's the Hollywood golden rule. And, you know, it's TV, especially, uh, I, I think the whole business is this way, but, you know, features may be slightly different because uh, I've done a few of those as well. And, it's a consensus building business. It's built on consensus consensus. That doesn't mean that you don't have to have a strong voice that you don't that you shouldn't have strong opinions and 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 make sure that you know you're that you're you know standing on principle on the things that are really worth standing on principle for. But mo but those are rare. Standing on principle is the rarest thing. It's the exception rather than the rule. And uh, I learned from that lesson, you don't ever refuse notes from the people that hold the purse strings on the show. Uh, it's just not worth it uh, because you then, you know, then everybody gets punished for that. The entire team gets punished for the ego of, you know, one person. So I always tell everybody, you know, that look, this is like Monica said, this is family. You know, it, may, it might get a little dysfunctional from time to time. That's okay. You know, we're human beings. We're all flawed. We might make mistakes. Everybody gets do-overs, you know, no mistakes are fatal unless they're, you know, uh, giant moral failures or something, but, um, or they hurt somebody else on the show. Those could be fatal, but, uh, I just, I truly believed in, in consensus building. You, a network note, yeah, a lot of times they are stupid. We have all gotten the stupid notes from the network because, but they have a gut instinct about something. They just don't know 
they don't know the fix, right? And sometimes they'll pitch a fix that is is a lot stupider than the note. But you still have to listen to those gut instincts. And I always have the um, the rule of two. If one person gives me a note, it's subjective. It, you know, everybody has a but, everybody has an opinion. Uh, but if I hear the exact same note from two people, I pay a lot more attention. Mm-hmm. And notes are important, especially from people who have earned the right to give you a note. You get to give notes if you're controlling the purse strings on a show, if you're the exec on a show, if you're the network head, a, executive. Uh, if you've earned the right to give an opinion, then people need to listen to those notes. Uh, so anyway, that, that was the lesson that I learned. And I, I preach consensus in a big way, uh, to, to people that work with me. That's great. Uh, Cheryl leadership, uh, for you, um, um, my goal, um, in the room and on the set, but particularly, um, this conversation is, is focused on the rooms, um, is that everyone feel safe, heard, and respected because I have spent a lot of times in rooms where I did not feel those things. Uh, and, uh, it became very important to me to be able to provide a room where people could feel those things because that I, my prayer is it gives them the comfort, the freedom, and the encouragement to write with their whole heart, um, and contribute to, other people's scripts with that same whole heart. Um, I, uh, I, I have worked with some uh, fascinating, fascinating people. Um, I'd, I'd like to be a bigger person and say, at least I'll thank them for that. Um, but what I will thank them for are the lessons I learned that I've been able to apply positively. So I now, I'm like Monica, I want my room to be a family. I've had another friend who said her staff called her the show mother rather than the show runner. And I was like, yes, that's it. That's the job. I'm here to take care of everybody make sure everybody gets their homework done on time, that they look really good when our friends from the network come by, and that when they are up on stage at the school play, everybody's doing their best. So it took a while to get there. And, uh, you know, some, some scars and some therapy to be able to process it all. But, um, yeah. I have my list of things I will never do as a result. And it keeps me focused on being positive, welcoming, supportive, and loving. Let's talk, let's talk identity and representation. Um, We have um, a a group, I'm looking at a, you know, a group of people here um, 
that represent um, people of faith, um, people of color, uh, men and women. Our business, our industry has had a lot of comeuppance over the past couple of years with some of this, many things in our culture. Um, I want to frame this conversation uh, in, uh, in, a, in a faith uh, framework. As people of faith, uh, I oftentimes personally get very frustrated that the church with a big C isn't leading these conversations. We're not leading the change. Oftentimes, we're the ones being dragged behind. And one of the things that we talk about at Act One, and we're constantly trying to reinforce is, I want us to lead, I want us to lead in these conversations in the culture of respecting people, treating them with dignity and respect, um, uh, this idea that um, all voices are welcome, uh, you know, at the table. I want to know from you guys, your experience. Um, what what can we do better in this? As people of faith, how can we uh, contribute to being um, better at making sure people have a seat at the table, making sure that people are treated with dignity and with respect? And I'll start with um, Monica. Um. Yeah, it's kind of like the big topic right now. And um, I'm really excited that CBS has wanted us to lean into, um, you know, we had an episode that aired, it was about the pandemic. And they asked us, after we pitched it to them, are you gonna, are you gonna, hey, we, you haven't mentioned anything about Black Lives Matters. And I almost fell off my chair on the Zoom. I was like, what, do you want us to... <laughs> Tell a story. I will, you know, I ran Queen Sugar. I will go there. But I, this is CBS. And so CBS to me is sort of like, in terms of network, it's like the old guard. It's like the standard bearer. And so they were like, yeah, we really, whatever, whatever you, whatever you want to say. And we had already broken the story and it was at the very beginning of the pandemic. So it was in March. So that hadn't really happened yet. But I was, I was actually surprised, impressed, relieved, happy um, that they we're encouraging us to lean into this sort of cultural inflection point that we're living in right now. Um, for me, how do we make it better? How do we do it better? I know for the longest time I was, you know, oftentimes the only woman in the room because I started my career mostly in action, high concept, genre, and then almost always the only person of color. Um, and as the staff writer or story editor, you don't really have a lot of power and authority. And so it puts you in this weird position of being the race police where you're like, you know, on, on lost when Damon was like, we're going to kill someone off the Island. The conversation in the room quickly turned to Daniel day Kim. We're killing Jen off the Island. Why? Because he doesn't speak English, which was like a horrifying thought. I was like, what, why wow. did you just say that out loud in the writer's room? Um, <laughs> So, and then it became myself and Javier Greer Marks Watch, who's Latinx, would, will you, we can't kill Jin off the island because he doesn't speak English. It was an international flight coming from Australia. And so, and then Javi pulled me aside and he was like, hey, you can't say that that's racist. You're a staff writer. He's like, you will get 
labeled the race police. He was like, you approach it from a, a story point of view. And so I went home and thought about it. And I was like, Jin is the only half of a married couple on this island. If we kill him off, we can't play love triangle. We can't play, oh, why are you looking at my wife that way? Um, and then Javi would say, like, we can't do that. That's saying that you want to speak the kill the only person off the island who doesn't speak English is racist because he was supervising producer. Yeah. And so I, I say that to say that in staffing the shows, in, 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 in putting together the list, everyone's always like, yeah, let's get a diverse staff writer. And I feel like it's the search needs to come also at the upper levels, the number twos, the number threes, the co-producer and up trying to get diversity at, at that level because they're the ones, you know, that we look to like, Hey, can you rewrite this draft? Can you, I need you to help me rebreak this. Um, they have more power and authority because like Brian said, we're in the army and because of their title. So I think it's a two prong effect. And like right now, I think it's starting to shift, but Hollywood has been obsessed with the programs, which I came through a program too. So I'm not trying to hate on the programs because they do give you a foot in, but it's like a triangle. And it's like all the diverse, the majority of the diverse writers that people are trying to pull in or at the bottom when there's a lot of mid-level writers that are trying to make it to supervising or co-EP or EP that can't catch a break. So it's like a two-pronged thing. And how much, and that's, that's really um, a great answer to that question because even like to even what Saladin was saying earlier about staffing, he's picking twos and threes in the room uh, with people seasoned people that he has relationship with. he's he's seen what they've written he knows and so if you only run with people who look like you talk like you act like you mm -hmm. then th it's going that room is going to look more and more like you right. and so how do you break that because what if if what we're saying is um there needs to be uh more um voices of divert not just that you know the token mm -hmm. one person how do you break that if um, if uh, the people in the circle that you run with tends to be only you like you? You have to be brave enough to hire outside your circle. Mm -hmm. And you have to consciously expand your circle. Um, I first season of Sweet Magnolias, um, the Netflix actually encouraged me to um, have an all-female room. And I said, I love that, but there's this one guy that I cannot do this show without. And this from somebody who used to be, like Monica, the one girl in the room. Yeah. Or my agent would say, oh, she's lovely, but we have our girl. Um, so I actually told a rep finally i was like stop pitching me men i have my guy <laughs> um but the the women that i wanted initially that i thought of bringing into the room were all busy so i had to uh you know start with reading and then meet um, and I knew I was going to have a diverse cast, so I knew I needed a diverse room, but it wasn't just a racial question. Uh, I was looking for people from small towns because I'm not from one. Uh, and I wanted people of different ages because we're a multi-generational show. 
Uh, and the mix that we got was fabulous. And I got a terrific education. And it wasn't just about me as a white woman saying, excuse me, what about this? And the black women in the room going, oh, no, what about this? But um, very memorably, one afternoon, I said something that I thought was sort of a universal. And two of the writers in the room were like, mm, not in a small town, not this character. And I said, okay. I had no idea. T tell me, explain to me the thought process. And we got this fabulous story out of it, a story mm. that, you know, a room full of me wouldn't have come up with because I'm a white person who grew up on military bases and in the suburbs. Um, so what I have started doing is um, I'm doing Start With Eight Hollywood. Uh, which is a mentoring group uh, that started from Women of Color United and Bitch Pack and a, a couple of other groups. Um, I'm just trying to meet more people at yeah. every level outside my group. Yeah. So that when I have the, I, I'm developing a show at Sony that um, is also going to be, um, incredibly diverse. Um, and I'm already thinking about, I need to know different people than I already know so that I have a great pool to draw on yeah. should that show happen. I need uh, to be educated so that I can make educated choices when the moment comes. Oh, Saladin, Brian, you, where does, when it comes to identity, mm -hmm. what about people of faith? You know, like I get the intentionality and, and I support, and I, like I said, we, we need to do better at this. We need to do better at this. But I also ask if we want to be intentional about hiring quote unquote minorities, mm -hmm. What about people of faith? Is there an intention? Do you guys have an intentionality at all towards um, hiring uh, uh, other Christians to be in the room? Is that even a, I don't know, right? Is that even a thought? Do you guys think about it? Is it, is it a consideration? Is it something that you're intentional about at all? Um, yeah, I, I, I certainly am. And I, you know, and I don't know, I don't know where showing a preface towards Christians falls legally, but, um, but, um, <laughs> <laughs> but um, nowhere these days. Yeah, right. um, I mean, 100% it certainly is something that I see as an asset. Um, and, but I treat it like, like you would treat anything else in terms of something else I may have in common with someone or something else I may understand or share with someone in terms of, of, of a point of view, you know, I mean, to be honest, I wouldn't want a staff of all Christians. Um, you know, I've been in enough church groups to know that, um, <laughs> you know, because that's that's not necessarily conducive to accomplishing a goal either. Cause it's still, just because we love Jesus doesn't mean we're going to, you know, all see this, these things the same way. That's um, right. But, that's right. But I mean, um, you know, the the more honest answer, you know, is also um, things that I create tend to come from me and my experiences, which tend to come from my world point of view, which is heavily influenced by being a Christian. So me seeing someone else as a, is a Christian also means that they are um, particularly positioned to probably be able to channel that point of view. So I can actually, you know, legitimately say that that can be an asset, um, yeah. you know, but 
you know, it's, 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 it's an interesting thing because, of course, I, um, you know, Hollywood uh, is, is almost synonymous with secularity, you know, yeah, and with, exactly. with being anti-God in certain, certain ways. And so there's certainly a need for more Christian representation, um, like all the members, you know, of these various groups that we're all members of. And then, you know, the people here, um, Christian representation that are Christians that are good writers, good actors, good whatever you are, you know, I think it's start being good. And then that then defies any stereotype or box that people try to put Christians in in terms of why they don't want to hire Christians or why they don't think Christians in Hollywood mix, you know. Um, and, you know, God knows what he's doing and God will, will raise to the forefront people who are in positions of power who will glorify his name. And that will then also draw all men, you know, unto him in, in the way that he does best. Um, and so it is a part of a process. But, yeah, I, I do think there's a discussion to be had about um us as Christians also deserving a place at the table and how we can help facilitate that, you know, um, for each other and with each other. Well, and I'm not trying to put you on the spot here, but, but I kind of am, yeah. uh, <laughs> but, but, but then, but also to Cheryl and to, and to Brian, just, just be quiet, but, uh, no, but, but, uh, but to Cheryl and, and to Monica too, uh, to the, my greater point about identity, mm-hmm. right? Like when you walk into a room, you're a black man. Right, That's what people right. see. When Cheryl mm-hmm. walks into a room, she's a she's a white woman, right? Mm-hmm. The identity. But how you identify yourself as people get to know you, right? Mm-hmm. As a person of faith, mm-hmm. um, is that something that has um, uh, been at times a struggle? Is it been something that maybe you've had to shelve? And uh, and are there uh, what what I'm curious about mm-hmm. is. There's this, uh, there seems to be sometimes a tension right. between people who think that uh, Christians should be, you know, screaming on the rooftops, right? And then there's people who think, no, you should be more uh, uh, covert and, and right. dare I say, in the closet, right? Mm-hmm. And um, I don't think either of those approaches right. are e- either necessary or good, Mm-hmm. Is there a happy medium? And I'm looking at you four who have reached a level of, of success going, how did you reach it? Did you reach it by being one of those poles or something in the middle? And, um, and how do you choose to um, uh, be a leader, uh, you know, on your shows, uh, living out your faith? Right. Um, you can go, Brian. Um, thank you. I, you know, I guess because I go back the farthest of all of us, I think. <laughs> um, you know, when I first, when I first sort of broke through and had my first staff job, I sort of had this attitude personally of uh, a little bit self-righteous, I think. And I sort of had to learn some lessons about that. Uh you know, like, um, hey, I'm going to be here. I'm going to help clean these people up. I never said that out loud, but sort of what was in my my heart. And I, I got a deep soul impression one night when some of the staff people, you know, wanted to go out and get drinks after after show night. And I said, you know, I'm I'm not going to do that. Uh, I'm not going to hang with you. I'm not going to go, you know, have drinks with you. And I was trying to sort of hold on to my, my faith there. And I got a deep soul impression right in that moment. And 
this was what I heard. <laughs> Who do you think you are? Me? And your job is to love on people. Your job is to be a blessing in any way you can. Be, a, be, be an authentic friend maker. If you love on people, I'll take care of the rest. And I, I really have tried to live that for the last 30 years, you know, in my work. And um, it's such a, you know, competitive business. It's such a, honestly, a temporary business. We're all like gypsies wandering around looking for food most of the time. And you camp where there's food for a while. And then when the food runs out, you got to go somewhere else and find more food, right? <laughs> That's just kind of the way the business is. We're all, we all just roll like that. And people need friendship. People need authentic friends. Um, and by trying to live that out, by trying to be friendly to people, you know, and, and actually be interest, actually be interested, not just in what they can do for you professionally, but how they're rolling personally, um, it makes a big difference. They want to be around people like, uh, you know, we all do. We want to be around people that care about us. Right. Mm-hmm. And um, so, you know, my, I do, now we do have to sort of be somewhat covert and it kind of comes and goes with, with the, whatever the politics of the day are. And right now there's probably, there's more of a reason to be a little more like Dietrich Bonhoeffer behind enemy lines, I guess. I don't know. Um, you know, but I'm not planting any bombs to hurt people. I'm just going to, whatever bombs I plant are going to be bombs of love, you know, and caring. And, and, and I just think as, as people of faith, that's how we're supposed to live. We're, we're supposed to love on people unconditionally, even if they reject everything we, we believe. And if I'm hiring somebody, now I have hired actually out of the Act One program. I've hired graduates from Act One to work on to work on projects for us. Thank, thank I, you, Brian. I, Good job. Yes, <laughs> no, I, I do. I do believe in. I do believe in that process. But if I if I have a brain tumor, I will. I would hire a raging nihilist who's the best brain surgeon in the world, and if. And if they happen to be a Christian, that would just be a bonus. I want the best person that knows how to take the brain tumor out. doesn't matter how they roll personally. Um, so, you know, to me, when we're staffing up a show or, you know, hiring a crew or whatever, um, you know, to be honest, it's kind of a mission field anyway. Uh, so to me, I just want to hire the best people that are available and the ones that I'm pleasantly surprised might have the same faith as me. Um, that's just a bonus. That's just a blessing. Uh, that doesn't, you know, I don't consciously set out to try to stack the deck like that uh, because we do need everybody's perspective, no matter where we come from, we need to hear from everybody. Yeah, that's good. Someone else. Um, you know, I'll just share, you know, and I think part of your question, Jimmy, was, you know, um, have we, in terms of our own identity, yeah. you know, how, how we represent that when we go about, you know, um, in terms of what we're going to be known as and how it affects our career. I mean, yeah. you know, um, I'll just share from my own personal experience. Um, I do not think 
being known as a Christian has hurt me in the industry at all, you know? And in fact, um, I'm pretty sure it has helped in all the ways that it is supposed to help. Now, you know, I really, I, I, I appreciate the two examples that you gave, Jimmy, because I think not just Christians in the industry, but Christians, period, I think we we wrestle with that. How much are we supposed to, you know, you know, go ye therefore and teach and, you know, make disciples of the nations? You know, are we supposed to be in your face? Are we supposed to be more, you know, covert, you know, is, is the word I know that we're using. And, and, and as you said, neither of those is right or wrong. It probably depends on your personality and how God has spiritually gifted you in terms of, you know, how you manifest those gifts. Um, but for me, um, since like I say at an early age, you know, I was, I was 11. So I was going through the most horrible period of most people's lives when I got saved, which is adolescence. So, you know, I, um, I learned early on to just deal with the ramifications of being different. Um, and that was very, those were some very painful, painful lessons that I'm just not being able to tap into um, creatively. But because of that, I think my approach professionally has been never, you know, putting my light under a bushel if I can try to quote scripture. Um, but at the same time, you know, I, I don't, I don't, you should ask people I work with, I don't think I've ever come in, you know, like trying to wear Christianity, you know, on my sleeve or badgering people. I don't, I'm, people may have received it like that before. Um, I just know I made a commitment to myself never to purposely avoid people learning that I'm a Christian or never to, never to hide it basically. Um, and I can point to, I mean, you know, just, just to give examples of how I don't, I don't think it's ever hurt me. Um, you know, before I was on Frasier, the showrunner on Frasier um, called me up at home and said, Hey, look, um, I hear you're a Christian. Um, you know, will you be comfortable working on our show in, in our room? And, and I, I, I took that as a sign of respect. I really did. You know, um, um, he wasn't saying they were going to, I mean, look, he wasn't saying they were going to change. He, in, in, in effect, he would say, are you going to be okay with us being the way that we want to be? Sure. So <laughs> right. I'm not fooling myself, but right, at the right, same right, time, right. you know, it made me proud to hear that people were saying I was a Christian, you know? Mm. And so I don't think it has hurt. And, and, and that has happened on more than one show. You know, I've had, I've had that happen. Executives call me and things like that. And so, you know, um, I think it is something that has put me in position to then, and I've made plenty of mistakes. Sometimes I wish people did not know I was a Christian because of <laughs> stuff I did and said, and I'm like, oh crap. All right, Lord, you know, well, <laughs> if this was the whole reason you had me here, I just messed that up. You know what I mean? Um, <laughs> But at the same time, I know I've been put in positions to for, for God's light to shine in someone else's life because they were aware and they were paying attention to what I did with the knowledge of he's a Christian. Let me see how he handles that, you know, um, and hopefully even in the mistakes and even in the failures, hopefully God was still able to be glorified, you know. But so I certainly don't think um, it is something that people we as Christians should feel any sort of insecurity about letting it be known. Yeah. Monica, what would be your advice for, a, a, you know, a, someone trying to break in to the business in, in this? Do you, um, sh, you know, because we get this question a lot at Act One, right? Like, how, you know, how, how do I live out my faith in this business? And uh, for you, how, how are you able to kind of answer that question in your own kind of life? For me, it's always been something that has come out in almost every room. And it's that question, like, what did you do this weekend? And it's like, I did this, I did this, and I went to church. Mm -hmm. And so people, you know, 
they're always like, oh, and I do. Uh, Dean Batali, I think I saw his name on here. Mm-hmm. He's one of my mentors, said to me a long time ago, it's it's easier for you because you're African-American and yes. there is an idea of what black church is in our public consciousness. Mm-hmm. You know, we've seen black church on TV. We've seen the choir and it is not foreign and it is not as, you know, judgmental perhaps when people think about the black church so it is a little easier for me i think to say yeah i went to church what's up you want to talk (laughs) about the service and and it's always been that in in rooms and it's not something that i'm like quoting scripture right and left and and you know saying things but i do believe you know that scripture like your gift will make room for you Mm -hmm. and i always thought it meant like your gift is writing or whatever and then one day it was like oh it was like your spiritual gifts. And I'm an encourager and I'm an intercessor. When I'm feeling really bold, I'll say I'm a prayer warrior, but today I'm feeling like I'm an intercessor. Um, and so I, you know, those are my gifts. I'm, my husband has the gift of evangelism. He's done a lot of youth ministry and things like that. That's not my gift. And so people get to, when they get to know me, they get to know that my faith is very important to me. And that's very much part of who I am, just like being African-American and Korean-American is. And I look at the world through that lens. Um, And so I say you have to be yourself because no one wants you sitting in a room not being authentic because we're trying to mine your life for Mm -hmm. story. So I, I think it, it definitely helps, but I, I, I've never been, you know, hit you over the head with it. And I will say this, I will, the Lord's like, tell the whole truth. There was one room where I could tell my boss felt a very certain way about the church, Christianity and everything. So I wasn't all like, Hey, I went to church this weekend. One day we had to, I had to share my screen and I had to put my password in and, you know, my password is always something spiritual, like Jesus is Lord or something like that <laughs> on the screen in bold, because I, it wasn't, you know, how sometimes it's encrypted or sometimes you can see it. And it was almost like the Holy Spirit was like, well, they know now <laughs> trying to keep it a secret. You were afraid. They know now. So don't ever do that again. It was sort of, it was like me shrinking away in fear of, from who I was. And it yeah. was like. Yeah, I learned I learned a lesson that day. That's great. Can I, can I add something here, Jimmy? Yeah, um, absolutely. One of the one of the comedy shows I was on, I won't name which one. Uh, I I had a Harvest Crusade sticker on my car, and I was walking in to Warner Brothers from the parking lot with one of my colleagues on the show, who, who happened to be a Jewish gentleman, and he goes, "What is that?" what's what's the harvest crusade and i sort of did had to do a bit of the curly shuffle at that point and i said well you know it's like um it's this thing at down angel stadium and you know christians go and they sing and they and they and they you know have a good time of together hanging out and and um sometimes they'll invite their neighbors you know who maybe don't go to church or whatever to come and and be part of that big party. <laughs> he goes, so what? You're like, they're like being harvested, like, like harvesting organs. And I said, uh, yeah, that's a. I don't even know how to answer that. <laughs> <laughs> and he goes, you know, um, we Jews, you know, we we tend to get a little nervous when people are targeting us for anything. So. 
it was a really interesting conversation. Yeah. But I, I do have to say, and, and, you know, and I had to sort of find my way with some of those kind of weird Christian things, because to be honest, you know, let's just be honest. Sometimes Christians wear their faith like a big weird hat, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? You're walking down the street, you got this big funky hat, it's kind of going going crazy, and and other people are looking at you from across the street saying, look at that dude with the big weird hat on, right? And you know, Moses, Moses told the Israelites not to sacrifice in front of the Egyptians, right? Because the Egyptians would like drain the blood first on their pagan rituals, you know, and they'd sacrifice the animals, but it would be very safe and, and clean. And, you know, but the, but for the Jews, it was like, you know, the more blood, the better, right? And so Moses said, don't sacrifice in front of the Egyptians, for you will be an abomination to them. And I, you know, I could be wrong, but I think a lot of Christians sort of become an abomination to the people around them because they just make messes and they wear the big weird hat. But so you have to find a way to integrate your faith in a way that doesn't, you know, be an abomination to people too, Mm -hmm. or to put them off. And I think friendship is the thing, authentic, being authentic, not hiding your faith, but just being loving on people. And, and uh, I, I really do think that's, that's the key. And at the end of that show, that comedy show, we got canceled. They, they literally pulled the rug out from under us in the final season of the show. With four episodes to go, they said, we're just not going to finish. And it was like this bomb that dropped on everybody, like on a on a day. And we were cleaning our offices up, you know, the next day. And one of those Jewish guys on the team, I mean, on the on the writing crew, said, asked me if I would pray for everybody hmm. around the writers' table. Wow. Asked me, called me out, asked me if I would pray for everybody. So, you know, it's not because of me. It's not because I'm Mr. Big Shot or or some great, you know, virt, virtuous Christian. It was because they they trusted me wow. at the end of the day. So, but I did not ever have any more Har- Harvest Crusade bumper <laughs> stickers. <laughs> and also, um, um, the the hat, your hat has, it fits pretty well now, Brian. So good job with that. You're weird. Thank you. Weird hat. Thank you. Cheryl, did you want to add anything? We're up, we're up against well, it on time, but I, I'll, <laughs> I'll, I'll make, make this brief. Um, I, I have a really hard time talking for too long without working the fact that I'm a Lutheran into the conversation <laughs> anyway. So um, I tend to say it up front not as a, you know, here, here comes the evangelism program, but as here's my identity, here's my point of view, because I have spent years working to integrate my faith and my art so that I hope it's really hard to peel one from the other. Um, But we were on, on set, for season one of Sweet Magnolias and had had some challenges. And my non-writing EP came up to me and said, um, I just want you to know that um, 
I, I really like the way you run a tight ship. And he knew my dad had been in the Navy, so he knew I would appreciate that. And he said, but here's the, the thing I really appreciate. I think we all benefit from your relationship with the big guy upstairs. Hmm. And we stood there while there was a camera change and we talked um, his faith point of view, my faith point of view, what it meant to us both to be in that moment with the show and in that moment with each other. And I told him, I said, I believe, and we had touched on this before. I said, the hand of God has been on us since the moment we met. Mm. And he now refers to it as the hand of providence, because that's where we got by the end of the discussion that night. And now things come up and he'll say, Cheryl and I know the hand of providence is on us. We'll figure it out. And that uh, there, there have been a lot of beautiful moments that have come out of this series, but uh, I think that might be my favorite. That's uh, that that we could meet from from different faiths in that moment to know that God had brought us to that moment, mm. and that we were we were there to use the gifts He had given us to try and bring joy to other people. I'm so grateful to all of you guys for being here. And before I pray, I just want to tell Monica you might want to go home and change all your passwords now. <laughs> <laughs> We figured him out. <laughs> um, but I would love to, I'd love to close this in prayer. Let's pray. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you for your light and your beauty and your truth and your goodness being reflected tonight in these four individuals. God, thank you for how they represent you uh, in this industry. God, thank you for um, just who they are and how you have uniquely crafted and created each of them to stand where they stand today. I just want to pray a special blessing, God, on each of them, that you would fill them just with the power of your presence, that they would um, be even more aware of their surroundings, of who's around them of the needs around them so that they can be that friend so that they can be that protector. They can be that one who makes sure that um, those that they work with um, experience your, your uh, love. God, I, I pray that they would be the hands and the feet of, of, uh, of your spirit and they'd be a tangible physical representation of how you love us, how you love us. And God, we just thank you for this fantastic evening. Thank you for everyone who joined us. Pray a blessing upon all those who were a part tonight. And we pray this in Jesus's name and on your promises we stand. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Act One podcast. Celebrating over 20 years as the premier training program for Christians in Hollywood. Act One is a Christian community of entertainment industry professionals who train and equip storytellers to create works of truth, goodness, and beauty. To financially support the mission of Act One or to learn more about our programs, 
visit us online at actoneprogram.com. Thank you.